go button. We are theoretically live, but as always, uh, we require some kind of external validation to confirm right. our existence. Uh, hey, everybody. Welcome to Monday Open Space. Uh, this week, I've got uh, Dr. Matt O'Dowd. Matt, how's it going? <laughs> hey, Fraser. Great. How are you? Good. You're, you're right in the hot zone, man. Yeah, this is the uh, global epicenter, New York City. Yeah, yeah. It's, um, <laughs> this is why I moved here. This is the center <laughs> of the world, man. <laughs> center of the epidemic as well. <laughs> little, little did you realize that you would be the center of, the epi of, a, of a global pandemic. Yeah, I, yeah, I'd like to say that I predicted this, but uh, you know, I, knew, I knew interesting things would happen if I came here. <laughs> <laughs> that's ex that's exactly it. That. <laughs> did, did you... I mean, do you have you got some kind of paper or something that you wrote saying that uh, that there will be a a global pandemic and it will affect you know uh, all of these major population centers? No paper that I've ever written has turned out to be true. <laughs> oh no! <laughs> <laughs> some 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 of them haven't been disproved yet. <laughs> oh, good. All right. All right. Well, like, like Einstein, it took what, like a hundred years to finally prove one of his ideas, one of his final sure. tests for relativity. So, so I think, you know, you've got lots of time. Yeah. Plenty of time. Yeah. Some of, some of them are pretty, pretty speculative. Uh, I don't, I don't think I'll have the same billion dollar facility proving gravitational waves that Einstein did, but, uh, Right. Yeah. There's, yeah, I don't know. If, if I get just one, I'll be happy. <laughs> so, uh, you know, you are, of course, the host of PBS Space Time. And, I mean, a lot of people know you for the just the nonsense, the, the, the physics, astrophysics, just, I don't, way beyond my pay grade that, that comes out of your face. But um, you have a real job that you do that is not uh, PBS Space Time. That's right. Uh, I'm, I, so I'm a professor at the City University of New York, uh, which is currently on lockdown. Um, <laughs> yeah. I was, I was on sabbatical anyway, so I, I wasn't okay. teaching. But my colleagues are all, are all trying their best to teach from home. It's, um, it's massively challenging. Uh, but yeah, so no, normally when I'm not on sabbatical or when there's a pandemic, um, you know, I teach a couple of courses and I... Uh, do my best to be a research scientist as well. Uh, so, you know, professor stuff. And so what specifically are your, like, is your area of specialization? Um, it's been more and more focusing on uh, the most uh, massive black holes in the universe, so-called supermassive black holes, and understanding how they grow, uh, and how they influence the universe around them, uh, which you know, turns out to be to be a lot, um, and finding different ways to uh, to peer closer and closer to those black holes, and, and which is a huge challenge. These things are impossibly far away, and you know by cosmic standards they're very tiny. And so it's um, you know part of the puzzle I try to solve is to learn how they work and how they how they rock the universe around them. 
and of course, uh, you were very fortunate that uh, a team of astronomers from around the world captured the first image of a supermassive black hole just last year, uh, although mm. they've been working on it for a couple of years. And so we got just this incredible image of just this exact region right around the supermassive black hole. I mean, if you had access to that picture, I don't know, five, 10 years ago, right? How, how would it have changed your thinking about your work? You know, we, we would have progressed the same way. I think the, what the, the picture did for a lot of people is um, it, you know, we believed that black holes exist for a long time now. Uh, you know, I study quasars, which are powered by these supermassive black holes. Um, uh, and they're basically a more powerful version of the, uh, of the, the thing, the, the, the beast in M81 that, that's driven by that, uh, the Event Horizon Telescope uh, black hole. And so for, for a long time, really since, I don't know, the, the 80s, we've been sure that nothing else could possibly produce the activity that we see in these quasars. You know, nothing could pull in material and accelerate it to such high speeds and such high energies to, to produce the, the crazy light that we see coming out of these uh, these very distant uh astronomical objects um and there's there's been plenty of plenty of other evidence also we see we see you know velocities too high uh close to these black holes in the center of the milky way we see stars orbiting um executing these crazy kind of slingshot orbits around some invisible central object that um that all of our best understanding of physics tells us must be a black hole. Uh, and yet, without having seen one, it's, you know, we believe it, but it's, a, it's, a, it's different when you see a picture. Yeah. You know, it's, it's, it's like, holy crap, we weren't deluding ourselves all this time. But I, I think you're exactly right that that, you know, that that preponderance of of evidence that had been built up to this point, especially like watching these stars whip around some invisible region, like they were comets or like they were they were planets on these incredibly eccentric orbits going around nothing. Like, at a certain point, if it looks like a duck quacks like a duck, right? Like, like, yeah. if it's not a black hole, if it's not a region of mass compressed down to this enormous density, then whatever it is, is effectively the same thing. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I, I think this is a really nice example or, or illustration of where, of this line that there, there exists between, you know, seeing with your own eyes and, and, and what you would call direct observational evidence versus, you know, inferred evidence or you know, seeing indirectly and, and in science, we can be so sure because so many different lines of observation lead to this one consistent conclusion uh, that that we could be more sure than if we'd seen with our eyes because our eyes, of course, can deceive us. And you know, when you look at something directly, there are many processes you're not, uh, you know, touching the object with your eyeball. There, 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 there's stuff that happens in between that there's the interpretations of your brain and we know that the brain can can trick us and so i think um uh when you really understand the uh the care that goes into certain uh you know sets of observations that lead to scientific conclusions 
uh, I think, you know, in, in a sense, we do, we do, you know, see these things directly. We see them with our scientific eye, mm-hmm. if you like. Uh, and and this is, you know, the 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 reality of black holes. I think is a good example of that. And and I think we saw it very clearly scientifically before the EHT uh, picture ever came along. Nonetheless, it felt good. <laughs> yeah. <clears throat> well, I mean, you can extend that concept though to some of these other mysteries that are happening in in cosmology today. I mean, it's the same idea with dark matter and less so dark energy. But I mean, at this point, astronomers have have seen dark matter many different, completely independent ways and confirmed its existence to by every test that they that they want. They know it's there. They don't know what it is, but that's that's someone else's problem right that's that's problem number two at least be sure that it's that it's there yeah and yeah there are m- multiple consistent lines for dark matter yeah and and so i mean i don't know what sort of what, like what the feedback is like for you but i get this this really um emotional response from viewers just saying like i don't like it i don't know what it is yeah. and i don't like it yeah. and and it's very weird to me because because this is just like this is just another mystery. There was there was all kinds of mysteries that came before. And and when you were in the middle of the mystery, it felt weird and destabilizing and confusing. And yet here now when you come out the other side, you're like, OK, now I know why the continents fit together. OK, now I know why the sun shines, etc. There is closure. But I think that for some of these ideas, I think we just got through that for black holes, but we're still in the middle of it for dark matter and even more so for dark energy. Yeah, well, we'll never take a picture of dark matter, so that's going to be a tough one. Yeah. Uh, although, it, although you know, maybe uh, maybe some doubters will believe it if we, you know, create it in a particle accelerator or or, or who knows what uh, dark energy, perhaps even trickier. Um, I know. In, in a way, we. You know, as scientists, we should admire this impulse to skepticism, right? Like, 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 be skeptical until you have the evidence, right? I, uh, I, I guess here, here, maybe the the problem is in scientific literacy, uh, and 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 so people may have the right attitude, be skeptical um, without without the evidence, but they haven't had the benefit uh, or privilege of you know, a scientific training, even if it's a, a really basic scientific training that that you should be getting in high school um, to be able to assess these new types of seeing and knowing. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, I think that's a great point that that when a person comes at some topic and is doesn't like it, <laughs> I think it's definitely important to just understand their entire framework of thinking and where like what method right but if they all they can get down to is i don't like it you know mm. it's just it's unsad i mean you'll hear scientists say a similar version of that argument as well you know i find it uncompelling i find it unconvincing whatever so it's not like it's just mm. it's in the lay audience mm. as well um so you you 
you pick a lot of very complicated topics, topics that I wouldn't touch with a 10 foot pole. And so I'm, you know, I made fun of you earlier um, <laughs> that, that the stuff you say is, uh, is nonsensical gibberish, but of course it is, you know, you are a astrophysicist. You have a deep scientific understanding of these underlying principles more so than I do. Um, and, and you do a great job of, of making these concepts really um, understandable but still, but not making them wrong. So how do you, how do you walk that line? Uh, I mean, I would say not always successfully. <laughs> I think, um, you know, we, we certainly get plenty of comments about, uh, love this episode, didn't understand a thing. Uh, but, you know, you know if, 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 if you're enjoying it, then great. <laughs> That's also good. Uh, apparently, some people love falling asleep to space time. Uh, <laughs> when we I've do... heard that from my shows as well. Yeah, clearly we're doing this other service. It's because we have very soothing voices. That's what it is. Yes. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Exotic, exotic foreign accents as well. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. We can good start ASMR channels easily. Anyway, we're not going there. Uh, so, so when I do get it right, or when we get it right, uh, you know, I, I think it's not so much. A trick, although I think I've got a lot better at it over these years. <clears throat> but uh, the 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 initial secret was just having a little more faith in the audience. I mm -hmm. think. You know, we we wanted to do a show that that went deeper. That you know, we thought of it as um, you know uh, astrophysics for people who had graduated from the you know thirty forty years of of let's make science fun, which had preceded yes. you know, this decade. And, and, you know, the, the, school of let's make science fun was great, but, but, but people have, a lot of people have just absorbed so much of that. They have this incredible kind of latent, you know, knowledge of, yep. uh, that, that's in, in, insanely broad. Um, and so we wanted to do something for these people, but also we wanted to do something that we would enjoy doing. Uh, and that, that felt new and we thought we would get a handful you know we thought it would it'd be enough to be worth doing uh it turns out to our great gratification that um there's an enormous number of people who are uh very hungry for a sense that they're kind of getting the real story if you like they're mm -hmm. that they're they're being told um you know the, the stuff as scientists think about it uh and you know I, I don't think we even have to get it perfectly right uh in terms of work, walking that that very narrow line um uh as long as we're authentic and, and honest and that's what we really strive for we just strive to uh just to to cut the bullcrap really and yeah. uh you know really try to tell some of these scientific stories um uh, in the most honest terms. And I think people have incredible, you know, bullshit detectors, honestly, <laughs> and, and really, really know when they're being talked down to. And yeah. so we, our, we, we like to, to just talk to, to people as though they're, you know, they're us with less time wasted going to, <laughs> to going through onerous physics degrees uh, and, uh, that that seems to have paid off in almost right. Well. There you go. I you know you just saved them twelve years of misery. 
And it was. It was <laughs> awful. <laughs> that's, a, that's, that's a time saver. But, I mean, have there been topics or are there still topics that you're punting that you're just kind of going, oh, I just can't. Nope, I can't. Some like are there ideas that are so mind bending and amazing, and yet they are so difficult to describe that you haven't been able to take a crack at them yet. For sure, uh, um, you know there were, and and there have been all along, and we've ultimately taken our shots. You know, we we tried out, we tried string theory. Uh, which you know got some some good reviews and some uh, some other reviews uh, you know from string theorists yeah uh, and uh, we um, you know we never we never quite got to M theory so that's there still and I'm I've been putting that off for a while now because like I feel like uh, I just want to really get that one right yeah and it's going to take you know every time I I dive into this or if I'm working with a, another writer or researcher, it, it just, we bury ourselves for a while and it's, um, it's, it's, yeah, it's a hell of a deep dive. Yeah. Uh, I, I mean, I know that, I know the feeling for, you know, for me, there are topics that are, I mean, a lot more fundamentally, you, you'd have an easy, much easier time with them. And yet I feel like the closer you get to something that you have to be very specifically correct about, I find it just becomes orders of magnitude more complicated to make sure that you've dotted every I and crossed every T and you're like, is this wrong? Is that wrong? Is this wrong? Am I saying this wrong? Yeah. Um, and I'm sure for you as you know, the number of people who actually know what's going on declines they're more aware of your attempts to to describe their work and mm. Mm. poke out of the yeah. you know and come yeah. by to to slap your wrists it happens it definitely happens yeah 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 and i, I wish we could do more due diligence i mean we do we do our best um but uh yeah stuff still stuff still comes through uh, wrong things well, yeah. less less often wrong things, but sometimes we just miss key stuff, and you know, often we end up just going back and doing another episode and trying to squeeze it in somewhere else. Yeah. But do do you get a feeling that that sort of the overall educational level of the entire audience is sort of growing in this way that's allowing you to attempt more complicated topics with less. I don't know, like build up. That's, that's the hope. Yeah. Uh, I mean, you know, it, everything builds on something else uh, for the most part. And, and, you know, it's, it's like, well, it's the story of, of science. We stand on the shoulders of giants uh, to see further. And every episode ends up standing on previous episodes to some extent. This has been, it's been a fun puzzle actually, because you know, the YouTube way is, you know, I mean, originally it was like six minutes max, but, you know, we stretch out. Uh, but but even even doing something in 10 or 12 minutes is, is super challenging, as you know, mm -hmm. I'm sure, and, and trying to, like, there's this kind of minimum amount of words that in, in which you can possibly express a, a, or teach a concept. Um, 
And so as we go on, we have to rely more and more on previous episodes if we're going to yeah. uh, progress that. Um, and so, you know, there's people also joke about the number of times we say, you know, go and watch this episode before you continue or, or, or whatever. It's, yeah. <laughs> I don't really expect people to do that, but you can watch it after. Yeah. I, I, I know, I know the feeling that it's funny, you know, my, my earliest videos were exactly that they were three minutes long. They were four minutes long. And now I can't for the life of me write an episode that is shorter than 12 minutes long or 15 minutes long. Like if it's a piece of breaking news, maybe I can pack it down to nine minutes. But, and it is not me trying to game the YouTube algorithm. It is me, I think, just getting better at telling the story at a level of depth that I think that it deserves. And so I think when I look back on my older videos, I feel like I was really, I was, let's make science fun. The, let's say a thing that you already knew, as opposed to now, my goal is to say a whole bunch of stuff that nobody's ever, you know, that no one else is talking about, that it's going to be brand new and fresh for the people that are watching this, because you're going to get the same information again and again and again, everywhere you go. But yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah. And it has to be fun for us. We have to feel like we're doing something worthwhile and, yeah. and you and, and, you know, we, it's, yeah, I, it, it's, uh, I know it's a two way street. Um, yeah, we'll, we'll see. I, I really hope that people, learn uh things but one thing that is true you know regardless of, of how much people retain is that uh, um i'm sure both of us have sent many people back to school <laughs> I, we've inspired we've i don't know if you've got comments we, oh, have, yeah. we get a lot of comments like this yeah yeah so that's amazing yeah you know if, if nothing else if nothing else we've um you know we've inspired people to become stem professionals of some sort or other most of them won't become astrophysicists, thank God. But uh, but you know the, the education will serve them extremely well, and the world. I'd like to think. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Uh, so this is uh, this is also an interactive experience, and I know I've got a bunch of questions, and I would love to throw some of these questions your way. So from I R I, how could you build a quasar lens? Is our lens mm -hmm. all right? I'm just gonna, I'm going to try to interpret that in different ways. So I study quasars using gravitational lenses, um, but the lenses that I use are giant entire galaxies that happen to be along our line of sight to the quasar. So the light from the quasar kind of bends around the intervening galaxy and and comes back to us via multiple paths through space. And so you see multiple separate images of the same quasar because you're looking along these kind of like this sort of funhouse mirror sort of situation. And in this way, you can massively enhance the power of your telescope because you have an extra, you know, 200,000 light year wide lens. Uh, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> attached to your telescope. It's a messy lens because it's made of stars, but, uh, yeah. but, but that, 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 that's its own thing. Um, so, but, but the quasar itself, so this supermassive black hole, bends the path of light from the accretion disk. And, and I'm sure many people have seen the movie Interstellar where the uh, gargantua black hole was beautifully rendered and you have this image of the, the black disk, but then there's this bright band in front and then over the top. And what you're actually seeing there is the so-called accretion disk, which is matter that's superheated, screaming into the black hole. Uh, but, but in a disk around it, 
Um, however, the, 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 the light from the disk behind it, as it tries to escape the black hole, is bent by the curvature of space-time uh, towards you. And so you see this lensing effect from this from supermassive black hole right now. Uh, and, and as it happens, we need to, you know, we need to account for this effect, this general relativistic effect. And um, by chance, my graduate student sent me today his first simulations uh, uh, trying to uh, account for this effect. Um, and I wasn't even sure that it would be a huge effect uh, for the types of observation that we're looking at, but but initial indications are that it is very large. And um, so is, is this cool. a, like this is an effect right now that you have to account for because it's messing up your observations. But is, could it be an effect that you could utilize to observe something else or something better? Um, it, it has information for sure. Uh, for example, it, it might help you learn the mass of that black hole because the more mass of the black hole, the stronger that bending. Uh, in, in the particular case I described, it, it's not gonna magnify too much, but it's gonna give you some extra constraints, I think on, on the geometry, on what's going on in there. Right. Um, because, because all these things have to be consistent, right? So if you guess the mass of the black hole from the way the, the gas is orbiting around it, that's got to be consistent with the mass that you get from this lensing effect as well. And so, you know, back to this whole idea of all these different lines of evidence coming together in a, a consistent way um, makes us more and more sure uh, of the evidence. But certainly the lensing effect of the galaxy and of the individual stars in the galaxy is, is hugely powerful. We can, we can do an awful lot with that. Yeah. There's, um, I mean, even just with the Event Horizon Telescope, we're just really at the beginning of this of this idea. I mean, there's going to be more runs every year to make more observations. I've also seen some interesting proposals to put up radio telescopes that would fly into space and then join the interferometer, providing a much larger baseline. And you could take this right now, the ability to observe two supermassive black holes and expand it to mm. hundreds and mm. and start to see far more detailed re images and regions around the the surfaces and 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 you know nearby area around the these supermassive black holes so like anything i mean it's like we got to see the forefront of it we got to see the first the first just like image but just you wait <laughs> 10 years oh, from yeah. now I 20 mean... years from now right yeah, I, dude, I have I, I have plans I, <laughs> with, with gravitational with gravitational lensing. You can you can resolve the region around you know smaller than the event horizon and potentially with thousands of these guys. Um, it, and yeah, a few collaborators and I have a plan to try to do this. It's going to take us maybe thirteen years. Right, right. Um, and so, I mean, I guess you know the long answer for that question is that that you you're using quasar lenses all the time you couldn't you couldn't do your work without them yeah yeah that's right it's, yeah uh, it's, it's, it's so cool it's so it's so cool looking trying to understand black holes a prediction of einstein's general relativity using lensing another prediction of einstein's general relativity it's uh yeah it's very uh it's very einstein universe we live in <laughs>
<laughs> I always say um, uh, that we, you know, with dark matter, we don't know what it is, but we know how to use it as a telescope. Yes, that's exactly right. Yeah. So, and, and you know, that, and, that, and, that, and that does most of the lensing in these, in yeah. these galaxies. <laughs> uh, Larry Beckham asks, uh, Dr. Matt, do you have any doubts on cosmic inflation? Yeah, good question. Um, this is uh, another example of something, I mean, far more so than black holes. You know, no one's ever seen it. No one's ever even detected, a, you know, anything that you might call direct evidence. It's just the best model we have to explain a couple of things, uh, you know, <clears throat> which, which I, could, I could go through. But basically, the, um, the, the, the fact that our galaxy our universe seems so smooth and, and uh, homogeneous on, on the large scales. It, it seems like the distant, the, the two distant horizons of the universe were one, once upon a time in causal contact with each other. Um, but, but they're so far apart that, that even, you know, rewinding as far as we can to the big bang, they should never have been in contact and inflation uh, is the best story we have, but um uh, it's, that's one that I would love to see a little more evidence on. Mm -hmm. And, you know, I hear that, you know, it's, it's just so well accepted. I mean, I, you know, I, I almost take the, the ubiquitous acceptance of inflation by cosmologists as another point of evidence in its favor, because surely they know, they know better, <laughs> but it's, um, you know, I, I would love us to see some of the those right. primordial gravitational waves or something. Right, but I mean, you've got what this you situation you... where where you've got this theory of the Big Bang that works perfectly except for these problems, and then along comes another theory that fixes all of those problems, and yet is yeah. brutally difficult to gather any evidence for it to be able to yeah. to 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 add that, add to that picture. But I mean, it's not impossible. I mean, we saw the attempt searching for the, um, uh, for the, the polarization of, of the primordial gravitational waves, you know, that was a pause and then it ended up being wrong, but, yeah. um, but it was, you know, it was an attempt to try to get in it, principle in principle to get at that answer. And maybe a future, much better observation will, will make this happen. Um, you know, there, there are, there are, there is evidence. There is what you almost would almost call. I mean, to to believe in a a new theory, the theory wants to make a prediction, and then you want to go out and and and, uh, and see that, right? Uh, but one prediction that cosmic inflation does make is that is what you would call what you call the power spectrum of the cosmic microwave background fluctuations. Okay, so uh, inflation predicts that. The blobs we see when we look at this afterglow of the Big Bang, so we see the afterglow of the Big Bang everywhere. It's it's, it's extremely smooth, except if you look closely enough, there are blobs. Okay, and those blobs are just tiny fluctuations uh, that existed in those very very early hot dense times, right after inflation, if it happened. And inflation predicts that that exponentially expanding space time that existed before the Big Bang should have been producing copious particles by quantum processes, you know, virtual particles appearing and annihilating. Uh, and those particles 
according to inflation, are responsible for these blobs. When inflation stopped, there was this uh, like distribution of, of, of energy that was a little bit more here, a little bit more there, depending on where those totally random particles were at that uh, at that early time. Um, but inflation can predict the sizes of the blobs, uh, how many small ones there should be compared to big ones, and um, inflation predicts you know, what we call a, a power spectrum, basically that it's what, what we would say is scale independent. So, so essentially there are as many big blobs as medium blobs as small blobs. And, and so, this, the, so this scale independence is a prediction. And we look at the cosmic microwave background uh, blobbiness and the power spectrum, and that's exactly what we see. It's scale invariant. And we, see, we also see that in the distribution of um, of galaxies on the sky, the galaxies that would later form from those blobs. So there's at least one, uh, and that's you know that's I would like two, <laughs> right? But is it? I mean, is it? It couldn't that also be explained by an incredibly unlikely chance? I think that I think it would be you would. I think it may like, be explained by something that's not inflation. Like you don't need inflation necessarily to get a scale invariant power spectrum. Uh, uh, so th there might be another story that gives you that. Yeah. That, just that highly chance. unlikely. Like, like I'm just saying, like, you know, run the, run the universe simulator a ludicrous number of times and one, you know, one of them might give you what we see, but that's not what you would expect. Yeah. That's, yeah. When, when you see something, when you see a pattern so strong, then you, you, you want a cause. Yeah. Uh, you know, and unless you can, invoke the anthropic principle which a lot of people do not like doing then you you want to find a reason why uh yeah uh that's the, that's the case and and you know it work, inflation works uh in a lot of a lot of the um uh i mean that, that's the one major prediction that i feel that it's made like the post-fact prediction, the the other stuff, you know, it was designed to give you the smoothness and the flatness of the universe. Um, but but then, you know, can it make predictions beyond that? So far, I would say there's one prediction that um, yeah, it's made. Um, Was a poet asks, uh, how taut is space time if space bends and gravity can warp it? So you know, could it snap? Mm. So it should be infinitely f flexible in that sense, in infinitely extendable. I, I don't think there's a limit to how much you could stretch space-time. Uh, but you know, who knows, once we start building warp drives, in one of the Star Treks, they, they uh, realized they had to limit themselves to warp five or whatever because they were they were tearing yeah. uh, cracks in the fabric of space-time. Uh, so we're not there yet. As far as we know, according to uh, you know the Einstein's picture, it, it can be stretched without limit. And you know, inflation did so. At, uh, at, uh, you know, crazy exponential expansion. But just because it doesn't it doesn't snap doesn't mean it's not taut. So when you think of that's. You know, in physics, that, that means, you know, how hard is it to stretch something? It's actually very hard to stretch space. It, 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 you, can, you can measure the amount of tension in space by how much energy it contains when stretched.
Okay, so, um, you know, so if you think of a spring, like a loose spring, you can stretch it easily and then it will flick back and, you know, big deal. It's not going to, it's not going to whip your finger and, and hurt you. But if, if it was a, if it was a strong spring and you stretch it out and you let go, you could, you could be, you could have a bad time because yeah. there's a lot of energy held in that, in that stretch. Um, well, space is quite, uh, quite taut in that sense. It tiny, amounts of stretch contain an enormous amount of energy. Huh. Um, and, and that's, I mean, apparent from gravitational waves, for example, like if you think about the amount of stretching uh, of, of space that is caused by a typical gravitational wave from, a, from emerging black holes that pass through the earth, they, um, they move, like they change distances by what is it again? One part in 10 to the power of 23 or, or, or I don't know, something a, a thousandth the width of a proton over four kilometers, I think is the, the, uh, the stretching, but that still is an enormous amount of energy. You know, the, these, you know, albeit, you know, in some cases a billion light years away, these, these giant black holes of like 30 times the mass of the sun merged and in many cases uh, release something like 20% of their mass or more as pure energy. That energy is just in the stretching of space. Um, now, if we can see these things, they're, they're bright. If we could see these things in light, like if we, for example, if they're neutron stars, then they're bright. But if we see them in gravitational waves, there, you know, as faint as you can imagine, that tiny stretching of space right. from a colossal, colossal release of energy, um, and so, so that's like if you have this very heavy spring, it takes an enormous amount of energy to stretch it a thousand the width of the proton. <laughs> so, <laughs> yeah, it's. I mean, it is. It is an absolutely incredible feat of science and engineering that we're able to detect them at all. Oh, so amazing. Yeah, yeah. And yeah. and it's funny when you look at some of the some of the gravitational wave observatories that are just on the um on the design board right now, uh there are observatories that are going to have arms that are 40 kilometers long, space-based interferometers, theoretically they're going to have arms that are 10,000 kilometers long, possibly mm -hmm. even ones that will be the length of like an astronomical unit. And yeah. so you can imagine yeah. getting to this point where what was we were lucky to see one that suddenly we're able to see gravitational waves in every every single gravitational wave event, every colliding neutron star, every black hole merger, even the primordial black primordial gravitational waves from the beginning of the universe, all visible all the time. To yeah, our, I mean, to maybe, 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 maybe. Although it's going to take more than just building bigger. Uh, uh, interferometers, uh, because the the size of the interferometer determines um, the really the frequency of the of the event. So, uh, build a very large one, build one the size of our solar system, and it will be blind to merging neutron stars because the frequency of those merging neutron stars is is too high. Uh, it'll see much larger things like merging supermassive black mm -hmm, holes. Mm -hmm. 
Um, so we have to, it's a, it's a multi-pronged thing. We, we definitely want the, the very large um, observatory so we can see across the, you know, the frequency spectrum of, um, of gravitational waves. But we also need to, you know, it's not, it's not, we can't just hit it with a hammer. We need to build uh, more and more sensitive four kilometer long um, uh, interferometers. And we need to, uh, you know, so we need to understand the, the minutiae of the mirrors and we need to employ bizarre quantum mechanical states of light. We need to use squeezed light uh, in our interferometers, all, all these uh, really fascinating things actually uh, in, in order to get more sensitivity. Uh, and, and also just, you know, more of them is also helpful. Yeah. Um, I got a question from LK Raider over on Twitch. Are we stuck in particle physics until we get a larger collider? What are the paths forward? I know particle physics isn't precisely your uh, specialty, but but I mean, we are at a crossroads at this point. Yeah, it's a it's a tough one, right? I mean, the Large Hadron Collider, you know, it's not the size of the planet, but it's the size of a country. And you, <laughs> things don't quite scale up linearly. You know, you can't just build one the size of the, the planet and expect to see all of the particles. We don't know how, we, we, we don't know at what energies those particles are. You know, the larger the, the collider, the, the higher and higher the, the energies you can see. And, you know, we, we'd expect to see, so, so the LHC is sensitive to a certain energy range. Uh, but we don't know if we build a bigger one, if we'll see the particles that the, the LHC couldn't see because, you know, not having seen them, we don't know what the energies are. Uh, and, and yeah, so, so I think we should keep building them, but uh, I wonder, uh, we, we do need to be pretty smart about the investment, mm. I think. You know, well, it's, I mean, at this point, people are starting to, you know, they're not, they don't have any specific thing that they're looking for. I mean, the plan now is just, smash and see what happens yeah i mean i think i think a lot of people still want to f prove uh supersymmetry and and find those supersymmetric particles that we'd expected to see by now that that must must surely be at higher energy because surely you know supersymmetry is true uh so, so some would argue that 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 we'll get that they're, that they're there they're lurking just above our our mass range um but it's, it's a, a crazy large investment. Um, you know, it, it's so many billions, I, I guess. Um, but people do smarter things, you know. I, I think there are other ways to attack these problems. Uh, cosmic ray particle physics, so astroparticle mm -hmm. physics is, is it's not as controllable. You have to wait for those cosmic rays. But those, um, you know, the universe is a pretty awesome particle accelerator. And, and can create much, much higher energy particles than our particle accelerators can. Uh, not as controllable, but... Uh, <laughs> right. But, um, yeah. So, uh, Cat 17 asks, what is your favorite, best, unrealistic, bad science sci-fi movie? Huh. Well, we talked about Interstellar, no. Uh, <laughs> for bad <laughs> well no it, it was fine the uh the the depiction of the black hole was spot on uh, especially inside the black hole i mean really just that idea well, of there being a library is 
it, it, it cannot be refuted. There's no way to, <laughs> no way to show that that's not the. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that was okay. My favorite bad. Uh, I, yeah, I like the good ones. Damn it. Yeah. You you tell me yours, and I think. Uh, so so I'm a lot more uh, forgiving on this front. And so and I'm sure it's the same way that people are towards the way we do our videos, which is that if we um, uh, like if you okay, all right, so here's my perspective on this, which is like, if you want to come up with a warp drive, you want to go fast, like if you're trying to just tell a story, and you need a way that you can get across the universe in a very short period of time or use a Stargate, then then do it, right? Who cares? But if you're going to have Optimus Prime reach out and grab a person who's falling out of a building and and not essentially have them the equivalent of hitting metal, then <laughs> you should have taken a second and just thought about how to minimize the amount of g-force that happens on the human body over a certain amount of time right and, and so that's all it takes just a, just a second just 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 hire a physicist yeah. to consult we don't charge much, <laughs> we <don't> much. <laughs> exactly. yeah yeah and so i think that i mean it feels to me like and i brought this example up many many times that that it's like there are so few examples of stuff that's great that really nails it that that really the rest of it is all kind of the same you know it's all wrong just wrong and so yeah. uh you know you have just these few shiny examples like the martian mostly um mm -hmm. uh interstellar mostly um and uh the expanse i'm loving the expanse mostly they nail it and in fact mm -hmm. use um science to tell some, to have some interesting scenes. Uh, are mm -hmm. you, are you watching the expanse? I've watched the first season. Okay. Uh, okay. And, and I feel like there, there may be plenty of home time ahead to watch more of it. Yeah. There's a scene in season three where they're in a ship and someone left a toolbox open and the ship is having to do high G course corrections. And so the tools are floating around inside the cabin. And then every time they have to change direction, the tools go in a different direction, like bullets inside the spaceship. It's really clever, mm. right? Yeah. Uh, so it's a, it's a thing that you wouldn't think of unless you were really trying to think about how the physics work. So I'm, I'm, yeah, I, the bad stuff, just, I just forget about it. I don't even think yeah. about it anymore. Well, let me, let me answer then. Uh, so not movie, but series also, um, we've been watch we've been watching old seasons of Dr. Who. Okay. Now Dr. Who, the physics is terrible. <laughs> the, the site, the site, you know, it's, it's pretty bad. Uh, but it, it doesn't pretend to be anything else. It is delightful. Uh, um, so the reason it's so great i think is that it it, it just feels like old school science fiction in the in the sense that it's forward looking it's optimistic and we, we were wondering why we liked it so much you know we we were watching something else um oh yeah devs mm -hmm. yeah, Are you aware yeah. Of that? watching yeah. devs yeah 
Yeah, it's very good, right? But it was it was getting us down, uh, and and this and in that the in that the physics is good, right? They yep. talk about uh, all right, or there's good discussions of physics because there's you know discussions of Everetti and quantum mechanics versus Copenhagen and 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 you know De Broglie Bohm uh, and and what these mean about about the nature of reality, and so there's these quite high end discussions of this stuff. Uh, and, and don't get me wrong, it's very good, but I was getting us down because it's, it's kind of dark. And uh, in these dark times, we realize that, all right, we need to take care of our mental health a little bit. What do we need? We need some, some, some we need to rewatch season six of Doctor Who. Season six, season, season seven of Doctor Who, Matt Smith. Uh, and uh, it, you know, I think, I think, uh, Science fiction has got quite arty now. The Expanse is quite dark, also. Mm-hmm. I think you know. I think um, you know. This is this is a much cooler way to do science fiction now. But uh, I think once upon a time, science fiction was uh, just much more. I don't know, just upbeat, optimistic, and uh, yeah. Doctor Who is, is is great for that. If you're feeling, you know, like you're not sure the point of existence is because you've been locked in your apartment or whatever <laughs> yeah the do- the doctor will tell you what the point of existence is <laughs> he's got he's he'll fix you yeah we've been watching picard and we've been watching um uh we've watching old episodes of star trek and the animated okay. series which has been just super fun to watch that i don't know if you've seen the you know the the old show star trek and then the animated series the animated Never. series it's all the same voices but they are um but they're all animated and so they can have these weird they're meeting these weird aliens right these aliens that are vegetables and and these aliens that are in these gigantic uh, ships that are that are a billion years old and are formed of crystalline structures, like sets that they couldn't have built back then with characters that they couldn't interact with, and yet they're able to explore all of these ideas, um, some just in a terrible way. Um, but it's a <laughs> Uh, there's some just some awful episodes, but there's some really good episodes, some really inspired episodes, and you sort of say, oh, you know, before really good special effects was available to them an animated show was actually a great idea. And it sort of, I, I sure. felt like every television show should do an animated version. Every sci-fi show, there should be an animated Doctor Who. Maybe yeah. there is, right? An animated I think Firefly. Be... Yeah, totally. Um, and, and Star Trek, I mean, original Star Trek has such horrible special effects. Yeah. It makes a lot of sense yeah. uh, to, to animate that. Um, Doctor Who is worse. Yeah. <laughs> Um, all right, let me see if I can get another question here. Um, uh, so there was one here. Um, Arjun asks, uh, so how far should we go into the science of things that cannot be presently or ever observed, like the strings and string theory? Or should we just wait for more data? Yeah, this is a tough one. And this is a question that we are going to have to answer as a civilization because uh, the universe is under no obligation to make its, you know, every next layer accessible to every next generation of scientists, right? Yeah. It, it, it's, it, it may take many generations before the next layer is accessible by our technology. And so what do we do in the meantime? Do we just declare everything 
that we try to understand about that, about those deeper layers, not science, <laughs> because they're not they're not currently testable, even if they're in principle text testable in the future, um, and and there may be aspects of of reality that, that you know, like for example, direct observation of a graviton. Uh, th there's no conceivable you know, experiment that, that can do that. Um, uh, so we, we, you know, we can't just declare them not science because, uh, you know, some, some pretty reasonable ideas of quantum gravity demand something like a graviton. So I think we, we, we do need to start to rethink what we mean when we say, is it scientific? Is it, is it testable? You know, the, the whole, I guess, uh, Karl Popper-esque idea of uh, of this observation-driven science um, definition of science, you know, maybe need to be a little more flexible than that. You know, for example, we can talk about you know when when math converges in such an uncanny way um, as it does, or as a string theorist would say, it does in string theory, but also in in other ideas. You know, is that a type of evidence, mm -hmm. right? So I think I think I think, uh, yeah, we it, we we are uh, yeah, particularly particle physics is reaching some sort of crisis point. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. But you're not just going to stop because if you stop, you're not going to be building the experiments or thinking right. about how to cleverly get around the 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 impossibility of the experiments. Uh, and yeah, I'm reading. I'm reading Paul Dirac's biography at the moment, and he was the ultimate theorist. You know, he was the theorist theorist and you know, famously predicted the existence of antimatter purely from his equation. Uh, and so I, I'm, I'm sensitive right now to the, the fact that you really can gain glean truths about mm -hmm. the universe just from these mental exercises. Not to mention everything that Einstein did. I mean, I mean, I think part of it though is like, like I get this pushback, and I'm and I'm sure you get a similar flavor of comments and questions on your videos, which is like, why are why are people thinking about Dyson spheres, or why are people thinking about about how to go to other stars? It's just not practical, etc. Right? And my response is, hey, we're just thinking, like we're just we're just sitting here, we're thinking of ideas, and nobody's getting hurt. So um, you can't constrain my imagination, man. Um, and and I think it's sort of it's an extension on that, which is like if all a physicist is doing is sitting down and putting, you know, pen to paper uh, or latex to to computer screen um, <laughs> and they are exploring in the way that mathematicians have always explored and and. And we don't know where those paths lead. I think definitely if you look at like a lot of really tangible resources are being dumped into one thing or the other, and it is causing other very useful things to not happen, then there's a conversation to be had there, right? No one, is, But no one is actually building an interstellar starship. All we're doing is talking about different ideas because it's fun, man. So um, <laughs> I, I think that... You know, and no, sometimes they and, and sometimes they pan out massively and change the entire world. Yeah, yeah. 
Yeah. Like, and know, I mean, like, even like string theory. Mechanics. Yeah. I mean, even string theory, we don't obviously have any way to really test it today, but string theory has done, has delivered many useful mathemat mathematics that has practical applications in other fields of, of work. So, so it hasn't been a complete waste of time so far. It has actually been a very functionally useful field of mathematics that, that has, you know, other uses. But, you know, could that, could the, the lifetimes of 200 mathematicians been used <laughs> for some more, you know, useful task? Who knows? Well, and also you can't, you know, you have to pursue these paths before you know whether they, they're dead ends. Yeah. Right. They, there's no guarantee that, that any particular promising path you pursue is going to lead you where you need to go, go but, you, but you've got to try them. Yeah. And, yeah. You know, even if we just ruled it out, that's something we constrained the possibilities. Well, that's the, you know, obviously what you want is you want to confirm the existence of your graviton or whatever, right? Or your, you know, that your axions are the, are your, your dark matter. But the other way to go is to just start ruling out until the thing is impossible. And that's, that's your second best way to approach it if you can. So that might yeah. be the, you know, for a lot of these ideas, that's the way they're going to have to get ruled out. The math holds observationally. They've been, you know, they've searched in every corner and they don't exist. You know, when you lose your car keys around the house somewhere. And if you looked everywhere, then maybe you don't have a car. It's the only maybe. possibility, right? That's, that's a beautiful analogy. That's, yeah. yeah. It yeah. works in so many ways. Yeah. <laughs> so, um, all right, I got one last question for you, which I think is totally different, which is comes from Anakin Luke on Twitch. I have a boring question. I'd like to know about time management between Academy and making PBS space time. So how, uh, how do you manage your time? Uh, so see, I just have one job. You have yeah, two. I've, 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 I've located this secret extra reservoir of hours uh that that i don't know if everyone's noticed them but they're they're called evenings and weekends <laughs> which is to say i work too hard yeah uh yeah you know it used to be more ridiculous you know and and uh it it was i you know i i just worked a lot um now i still work a good amount but uh i'm much faster at writing scripts um I have just a, quite a store of just crap that I've learned now. So I, when I started uh, PBS based on my, uh, my particle physics was pretty bad. Uh, and, and now it's less bad. Uh, and all these other random yeah. paths we've walked down. And so, uh, so it's a lot quicker. Yeah. Um, I'm, I'm a lot quicker in front of the camera. That used to take a long time. Mm -hmm. I used to, it's, it's harder than it looks as I'm sure, you know, <laughs> yeah, yeah. you know, the, the idea is staring at this black lens and trying to emote at all, pretend that that's a, you know, that, that you have any, uh, any feelings towards this, this disembodied thing. Right. Um, while reading, uh, you know, cause I'm, I'm typically finishing writing the scripts minutes before we shoot and so there's no time to, to remember anything so there's a, a, a teleprompter so yeah that that now that's much faster than it used to be the first uh episode 
it took us like eight hours to film it and just because i you know we had to do it again and again and again and <laughs> i came back the next week and uh my producer andrew kornhaber uh said matt we gotta just refilm everything it's unwatchable <laughs> oh, no. like, how how bad can it be and i watched i couldn't watch more than 30 seconds of it it was awful yeah uh, so so that that's faster now um yeah but you know in the end it, it's it's uh it's hard but uh I get better. I get yeah. better. <laughs> the thing for me that has that has made me a much better science communicator is doing the live work. So really? yeah, absolutely. Um being in real time, answering questions, uh nothing focuses the mind uh in in that way. And I think that like if you go back and look at before I started doing the question shows and now I'm a vastly better science communicator than I was back then. And it's mostly, you know, at this point I've on my question shows, I must have had, I must have a thousand, right? Questions. No, let me think. Yeah. Yeah. More than a thousand questions answered all the live stuff, you know, an hour a week of just me, huh. me answering questions. It has been just so good for my brain. Um, so I, Great, I highly, wow. rec I highly recommend, uh, turn on the camera and live streaming. And I know your fans would, would love it as well. So, you know, in case you All do right. find like another dimension that offers some sort of time, then, you know, I highly recommend it. Like a global pandemic. Like a global pandemic that forces you to stay at home. Yeah. Yeah. Something like oh, we, that. We have we have moved all of our filming equipment to my apartment now oh, great. Uh, so that, so that for the foreseeable future, I'll be filming in my apartment, uh, which, so it won't be green screen, which is going to be different. Yeah. We'll see how that yeah. goes, but, uh, it's sitting there. I guess I could use it for something else. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, well, Matt, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Of course, if people want to find out more about what you do, where should they go? Well, come to PBS space time on YouTube. First and foremost, uh, that's uh, that's where I talk about space. Um, you know, my other social media are very spotty, so I, I would just come to Space Time. Uh, yeah, I have no, a website. I, I agree. I think um, you can Google me. You can I'm Googleable. You'll, yep. you'll find my website. Yeah, Twitter is Twitter is just a place of sadness and grief and anxiety for me these days. So you know, I try not to spend as much time on Twitter as I or any of that other stuff as I can, you know, I limit my, yeah. I'm, I'm really trying to limit my news intake to just a couple of minutes a day, just to make sure that nothing really has gotten away from my mind. But apart from that, it's, I find I can rabbit hole and spin my wheels all day long and not get anywhere. Yeah. So yeah. Yeah. It's a good habit. Well, again, you're in the, you're in the epicenter of this, you're in the hot zone. So dude, stay safe, uh, stay inside. Definitely make those make those green screenless uh episodes for now all right absolutely all right we'll take and, care you man. Know, every everyone stay safe yeah see you Fraser. thanks very much